0: Please be seated. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. I started out doing student ministry in the fall of 2011. I was a 20-year-old college kid, and I thought most of the challenges I would deal with from teenagers would concern things like underage drinking, uh, relationship drama, and trying to keep them from kissing on the church bus. And those things were certainly issues, but there was one issue I began to hear from students about that, honestly, I wasn't that prepared for, and that was issues related to gender and sexuality. Students would come to me asking questions like, is being gay really a sin? Why does it matter who someone loves? Or they'd say, you know, my my friend at school says that she is a boy now and wants to be called a boy name and boy pronouns. What, What do I do? And these questions weren't exactly new. These sorts of issues have been around for a long time. But it felt like there was this groundswell happening where those sorts of questions became more common and more urgent. I began to sense then that questions concerning gender and sexuality were going to become the make-or-break issue for young Christians and their faith. And then 2015 happened. In the span of a few months, two major events reshaped our culture. First, the Supreme Court redefined marriage. Ruling that same-sex marriages were legally valid and must be recognized as such. And then, not long after, the same year, Bruce Jenner, the Olympic gold medalist, sat down in a record-breaking interview with Diane Sawyer to tell the world that he had been living a lie. He said that he was really a woman trapped inside of a man's body. From then on, the conversation around these issues has come to dominate our society, touching literally every sphere. Think about it. It's impacted education with debates about bathrooms and locker rooms and books in school libraries. It's impacted sports with debates about transgender athletes. It's impacted health care with debates about surgeries and hormone replacement, especially when it comes to minors. It's impacted entertainment with debates about trans and gay celebrities. It's impacted business with debates about companies supporting or not supporting the LGBT movement. It's impacted religion with churches and organizations being forced to choose to affirm these new lifestyles or be labeled as hateful and backwards. And it's likely impacted you in some way. Maybe you know someone who's wrestling with or has embraced one of these lifestyles. Maybe you've been put through training at work in how to be more inclusive of LGBT people. Or maybe you have a coworker or a friend who's asked you to support them in their new journey. Guys, it is not an understatement to say that we are witnessing a revolution concerning the way Western culture thinks about gender and sexuality. But before we go and blame everything on young people these days or social media or pop culture, it's important to understand that this is not new. This has been a long time coming with previous generations paving the way. The importance of marriage was tarnished long ago. And all sorts of other sexual sins have long been minimized. While as Christians, we've often stuck our heads in the sand, avoiding tough topics out of fear or not wanting to offend or just lashing out in anger. But here's the good news. As our culture continues to redefine gender and sexuality, people are beginning to see the damage it's done. There are people all around us confused and searching for what is true and what is good. And that gives us an opportunity to have a unique Witness. We have an opportunity not to hide in fear, not to lash out in anger, but to speak with grace and truth about gender and sexuality. And our message to the world has a foundation in one of the most important doctrines taught in the Bible, which is called the image of God. If you were here last week, our lead pastor, Pastor Derek, kicked off a brand new message series we're calling Imago Day. That is the Latin term that Christians have used for centuries to talk about the image of God. Pastor Derek laid the foundation for us. He took us back to Genesis chapter 1, where on the sixth day of creation, God created mankind in his image. It's the only group of created things that God said that about. We said that the image of God means a lot of things. It it speaks to the way that we represent God on the earth, ruling over his creation. And it speaks to the way that we're similar to God and made for a relationship with him. But ultimately, and this this was the key point, Pastor Derek said that if we want to know what the image of God is, we don't have to go very far. We only have to flip to the New Testament and look at Jesus. Because the New Testament authors tell us that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus was and is true humanity as God intended. As 100% man, Jesus showed us exactly how God wants us to live. And exactly what it looks like to perfectly reflect God's image in the world. But we said that sin has broken everything. Everything including our ability to image God as we were designed. So Jesus came to save us from our sin and restore us back to God. Through him, we are being formed into his image, becoming more and more like Jesus. And one day, when we're reunited with him in eternity, we will then reflect and image God perfectly. Until then, we have a responsibility as image bearers to show the world who God is and what he's created us to do. And that hits on so many issues in our world today, including the most controversial and important issues people are wrestling with. We're going to hit several of those issues throughout our series, but I think perhaps none is more important than the one today. As Derek explained last week, each of our messages will answer the same three questions, looking at the image of God in the person of Jesus So let's look at our first question today on the topic of gender and sexuality. Number one, what did Jesus teach? To answer this question, let's look at a passage where Jesus answered a question from the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19. As usual, these guys were trying to trap him, to trap Jesus, and get him to say something they could use against him. And in this instance, it was concerning marriage and divorce. Look at Matthew 19. Verses 3 through 6. And Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He, Jesus, answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two. But one flesh. What therefore God has joined together? Let not man separate. Jesus is making a point here about marriage, and we'll come back to this next week, but it's within his point on marriage that he shows us something very important concerning gender and sexuality. He ties together two key passages from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. First one is Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This right here is the foundational passage on the image of God. And it tells us something so important about that image. It tells us that to be made in the image of God is to be made with a human body, that is either male or female. That means our biological sex, our male or female bodies, are not accidents. They're not just minor details about who we are. No, we were created to reflect God through our gendered bodies. God intentionally designed biological sex to be what we call a binary. That means God created you and me to be one of two things, either male or or female. Our biological sex is assigned and created by God and then displayed through our bodies. But why does being male or female really matter? Why is it so important to God that he would make that a key part of his creation? Well, it's kind of obvious when you think about it. If God created us to bear his image by ruling over creation and being fruitful and multiplying and spreading over the earth, that requires the ability to procreate. That requires male and female working together to make more people and you don't need a biology lesson to figure out how that works. So with Jesus quoting this passage from Genesis 1, Jesus is affirming that God's design for there to be two biological sexes was intentional and purposeful. But in the next sentence, he jumps to Genesis 2. This verse comes right after God created Adam, and Adam realized that he didn't have a suitable partner. God told Adam, he said, it's not good for man to be alone, so he created woman from man. And then we see the verse Jesus quoted, Genesis 2 24. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus jumps from highlighting biological sex in Genesis 1 to gender in Genesis 2. He says that a biological male is a man, a husband who's to be united to a biological female who is a woman, his wife in marriage. Male and female were created for one another to complement one another in a way that two men or two women never could, which is why there there really is no such thing as same-sex marriage. It doesn't exist. It can't. And we'll talk more about that next week when we talk about marriage and singleness. But Here's the first answer to our first question. It'll be on the screen. What did Jesus teach? Jesus taught that gender is inseparable from biological sex. Now, let's contrast that first with what has now become commonly accepted in our culture today. What we hear today in our modern society is that all of us have what's called a gender identity. That is defined as one's personal sense of their gender. That's the key part, the personal sense of your gender. That gender identity may or may not match your biological sex. You might have the body of a male, but you may perceive that you're really a woman on the inside. And someone who lives out a gender identity that is contrary to their physical body is what is called transgender. But today, we've gone well beyond that. Today, gender identity has expanded to all sorts of categories beyond just man or woman. You can go online and Google how many genders there are today, and you'll receive very inconsistent answers. I looked at just a few sites, and I found real lists of 20, 72, and even 107 different genders. So, most secular thinkers today say, you know, the best way to think of it is there's really no limit to gender identity. They say because gender's not a fixed thing, rather, they argue it's a spectrum. They say your gender can be anything or it can be nothing. You can have no gender. You can change it depending on the day or the social setting. So essentially, gender identity has become as customizable as a clothing style. And I know if if you're not familiar with some of this, this may seem confusing or strange, but the simplest way for us to understand this is that gender and biological sex have been separated In most people's minds today, they are arguing that your body is no longer the determining factor for your gender. Rather, it's who you feel like you are on the inside. And when you start thinking about that messaging, you start to see it a lot in our culture. I think especially in in movies today. You see it in every movie where they say, follow your heart. What matters is who you are on the inside. Break off this cage you're trapped in and embrace your true self. Be who you really are. Look, all of that messaging is feeding this new gender ideology. And as Christians, this is where we hold out a different message, a true and a good message. We believe that both our biological sex and corresponding gender are good designs by God. That despite how we feel, God doesn't make mistakes or accidents, but we are intentionally and purposefully made by him. So my soul, who I am on the inside, and my body, who I am on the outside, they're not at odds with one another. They're not two competing parts. One is not better or more true than the other, but I am one whole person, an embodied soul. So our body is not some evil cage to break free from, but it's a good gift from the Lord to be used for his glory. Whether male or female, you've been created by God, stitched together from conception, from that moment, having X, Y, or XX chromosomes running through your body. And God's will is for you to live out your given gender in a way that testifies to God's good creation. Okay, but hang on a second. If what you're saying is true, then why is there such confusion in the world today when it comes to gender and sexuality? I mean, if everybody says it's okay, why doesn't that just make it okay? Well, here's the second thing that Jesus taught on this topic. Jesus taught that we are broken sexually. Flip with me to Matthew chapter 15. Again, in this chapter, Jesus is addressing a critique of the Pharisees. He's pushing back on the idea that what you eat can make you unclean. That's what the Jews believed. And he says, no, it's not what goes into your mouth. It's actually what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean because it comes from your unclean heart. And Jesus lists out these various sins that come from our hearts. Matthew 15, verse 19. Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Two of these sins are important for our topic today. Jesus mentions adultery and then sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneia. That was an all-encompassing term for any sort of sexual sin. And what Jesus says here is that, yes, these things manifest themselves as sinful actions that we take, but they come from Our sinful hearts. We are so broken by sin that our very hearts have been corrupted. So that means just because something feels right does not mean it is right. Just because we want something or we think something will make us happy, that does not make it true or good. Man, this is a message we need when it comes to the conversation on gender and sexuality. The mantra of our day is you can't help how you feel. If it feels right, it must be right, so just do it. Feelings rule all, and they determine so much of what happens in our world today. But we've got to understand that feelings, our feelings, our desires are broken. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked because we are broken by sin, we are broken sexually. So while we may shake our heads and wag our fingers at those who live a gay or transgender lifestyle, here is the truth. You and I are just as sexually broken as anyone else. All of us are sexual sinners. All of us have desires contrary to God's design and have acted on those desires. If you want to know how the world got so messed up today, look no further than your bathroom mirror. Long before the gay and transgender movement, it was Christians who normalized things like Playboy and one-night stands. God designed sexuality for the context of marriage between one man and one woman for life. And anything outside of that good design is sin. Jesus said in Matthew 5, that even includes lust. He said to lust after someone is to commit adultery in your heart. So man, I, I say all this because I want us to feel that weight this morning, that this is not out there, but it's also in here. It is so important that we approach this conversation not from some high, lofty pedestal of self righteousness, but from a posture of humility, knowing we're sinners too. All of us have rejected God's design for gender and sexuality in some way, and we therefore rejected the image we were created to reflect. So what do we do? How do we fix this mess we found ourselves in? Well, we must look back at the true image of God to find the answer, Jesus himself, and look at what he did when he encountered sexual brokenness. And that brings us to our second question this morning, number two, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? In John chapter 1, we read that Jesus was full of grace and truth. That means everything Jesus said and did was perfectly gracious and perfectly truthful. We as imperfect people tend to swing one way or the other, especially when it comes to topics like this one. Some of us swing more toward the side of grace. Grace. Like We want people to feel our love and our acceptance of them and in the process we unintentionally minimize truth. Then others of us swing more toward the side of truth. We want people to know what's right no matter how it sounds. And in the process we unintentionally minimize grace. Jesus is the only one who ever perfectly embodied both and I want to show you a story that I think displays that best. It comes from John chapter 8 if you want to Turn there with me. Once again, Jesus is confronted by a group of Pharisees. These men wanted to find a reason to get him in trouble. So they catch him teaching a large group of people, and they take a woman caught in sexual sin, and they throw her in the middle. Watch what happens. John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you Be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Here was the conundrum they put Jesus in. They knew he wouldn't call for this woman to be stoned, but they also knew that was the written penalty in the Old Testament law for adultery. So if Jesus refused, he would have the, defied the law and been guilty himself. Jesus had the perfect response. It was calm, patience. Everyone wants to know what he was writing on the ground. We don't know. But by doing that, he diffused the heat of the situation. And then he turned it back on the men. He said, hey, if you're perfect, why don't you throw the first stone? He pointed to their sin and their hypocrisy. And one by one, they walked away. That last verse, verse 11, is the moment where we see the perfect grace and truth of Jesus. First, let's look at the grace in this point. Then we'll come back to the truth in the last point. Here's the grace from Jesus. It's one sentence. He says, neither do I condemn you. Think about it. If anyone had the right to condemn this woman, it was Jesus. He was God. He was perfect in holiness. It would have been totally fair for him to punish her sin. Jesus could have said, look, I'm sorry. You messed up. And now you got to pay the price. It's what the law says. It's what we got to do. But that's not what he does. Instead, he shows her grace, and he refuses to condemn her. So here's the answer to this question. When it comes to gender and sexuality, what did Jesus do? Here's our answer. Jesus treated the sexually broken as image bearers. The Pharisees in this story treated this woman as a prop. We know from the Gospels they tried all sorts of ways to catch Jesus and charge him with a crime. So they no doubt took the opportunity of this woman's sin, disregarded the man in the situation, and then used her as a political stunt to make a point. She was just an item for them to be used to catch Jesus. And Jesus saw through that. And he treated this woman with dignity and respect as an image bearer. And this is not the only time he did this. There's another story in the Gospels where another woman who was a sinner came to Jesus while he was eating dinner at a Pharisee's home. And the woman, remember this story, the woman came in and washed his feet with her hair and her tears. She anointed his feet, washed them. And the Pharisee said, don't you know who this woman is that's touching you? She's a sinner. In all likelihood, based on the way she's described in the story, this woman was a prostitute. But Jesus rebuked the Pharisee. He saw this woman again as an image bearer of God, as a human being, and he forgave her. We see this in even more places as Jesus is criticized for eating dinner and making friends with prostitutes. It's clear that Jesus saw people as people. He looked on them with compassion, knowing they were made in the image of God no matter who they are who they were or what they'd done. And we have to approach those who are struggling with gender and sexuality in the same way. Unfortunately, what we tend to do is label people. We see a person walking in a sinful lifestyle and we say, that person is gay, that person is transgender. We we make that their identity. And once we label them, then we can oppose them. We see them as a political enemy to be defeated, and yet we have no idea what they've been through. I remember when I was a student pastor in Tennessee, one of the conversations I had on this was with a young man in high school. And he told me, confided in me, that when he was an elementary-aged boy, his pastor molested him and several other boys in their church. Thankfully, that pastor's now in jail and will be for life. But he told me that ever since that happened, he felt an unwanted attraction to the same sex. He knew what the Bible taught. He believed it was wrong. He wasn't acting on it, but that was what he was experiencing every day. And as a result, he lived with confusion and shame and thought of taking his own life. When he shared that with me, maybe for the first time on this issue, I felt a deep sense of compassion. The pain and hurt in his eyes haunted me. And I've since encountered similar stories of people struggling with their gender and sexuality and identity. Look, I know today's gender ideology and sexual revolution is evil. Like I know there are activists and organizations who are pushing this stuff on kids and they deserve our righteous anger. And there are many different factors that would lead someone to choose one of these lifestyles. But I don't want you to miss that there are so many people caught up in this who were hurting. They are searching for meaning and purpose, trying to find their identity and they've been sold a lie. Many of them have been burnt by the church, told that they're going to hell and there's no hope for them. No wonder they run to other communities. They've been told by the world that if they just follow their heart and embrace that inner desire, they'll find contentment and happiness. And many have hit rock bottom. The suicide rate for people who identify as transgender is over seven times higher than the general population. Many suffer from what's called gender dysphoria, which is a diagnosed mental health condition where a person genuinely perceives themselves to be a different gender than their biology. Look, I'm not excusing sin, and I'm not saying this makes it okay for someone to live this lifestyle. Rather, I want you to see that this is not always something people just make up and embrace for fun. These are people Human beings like you and me, made in the image of God, deserving of our dignity and respect, looking for truth in a world that is screaming lies. And like Jesus, we need to approach this with compassion and grace. Loving and listening first. But, and I want to be clear here, Loving does not equal affirming. This is where we differ from the world's approach. And this is where, unfortunately, we get labeled all sorts of things like hateful and bigoted. The world says that if you love someone, you must affirm and recognize and celebrate who they are, their identity. So we need need to make one more point clear this morning. Here's our last question and answer, number three. What does Jesus command? And here's the answer. Jesus called the sexually broken to repentance. We cannot miss the last words Jesus spoke to the woman in John 8. He was gracious to her. He had compassion on her. He saw her as an image bearer. But his final words were, go and sin no more. He spoke the truth and he called her to turn away from her sin and repent because he loved her. To the world, that's hateful. They say, how dare you tell someone else how to live their life? How dare you push your morality on me? They're not hurting anybody. Who are we to judge someone and deny their right to exist? But guys, here's the key thing that we cannot forget. To affirm someone in their sin is not loving. It's actually the opposite because as 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. The gracious and loving thing to do is call someone caught in sin to turn back. And then that makes complete and total sense. I think about it with my kids. I love my kids. So when I see them doing something that is going to harm them like 50 times a day, I tell them to stop, stop doing that. That's going to hurt you. To effectively love people, we have to speak the truth, no matter how hard or offensive it may seem. And how we do this takes wisdom and discernment. This is not screaming at people on the Internet. This is not confronting strangers on the street. If we want to call someone to repentance, it's going to be a lot more effective if we have a relationship first. If they know how much we love and care about them first. So that's my encouragement this morning. Yes, let's stand for the truth of God's word. Yes, let's push back against the tides of culture. But let's do so while treating all people as image bearers and loving them despite their choices. Let's be a church where a transgender or sexually broken person could show up on a Sunday morning, come to our worship service, and feel welcomed. Let's be a church that invites our transgender or gay neighbor over for dinner in our homes. Let's be a church that is prepared when those who have been sold a lie wake up and go looking for the truth. And let's be a church that points them to the hope and forgiveness and Jesus, knowing that we were once lost too, looking for the very same thing. I also want to say a final word to those in this room, those today who are struggling with their gender identity or sexuality, because in a room this size, there is no doubt someone here today in that very place. Listen to me, I know that our culture says people who believe like we do are anti-this and anti-that and hateful and backwards. Many in our community will view us this way. But I want you to know that we love you. And we believe you're made in the image of God to reflect him and to know him. And we believe these things I've said today, that gender is inseparable from biological sex. That all sexual immorality, heterosexual or homosexual, is outside of God's design. We believe these things today, not because we hate you, but because we actually love you. And as a sexual sinner myself, I can tell you firsthand that if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you will find forgiveness and freedom like I did you will find the meaning and identity you are so desperately seeking. And you will find a church that stands not above you to look down, but beside you to walk aside, willing to love you like family and walk with you through whatever life brings. Listen, I know what I'm saying is not easy. And it may seem contrary to everything you feel and everything you've heard, but here's the promise Here's the promise we have in Jesus. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly and hard, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray.